I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. I do want to mention, uh, I was able to stop into the Sunday school class. We started Sunday school class. Is the Bible just another book? Uh, it's a two-part series. I'm, I'm looking, um, and Gary, just in case I said I'm wrong, it's a two-part series. Dr. Lawson is teaching, and um, Dr. Lawson was my preaching teacher. So if you like my preaching, you'll like his class. If you don't, I'll never stop at McDonald's. And we'll be looking at verses 4 to 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. And then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Father, we ask now that your spirit would direct our hearts to your word as you teach us. Illumine our minds that we may receive this truth in Christ's name. Amen. The other week when we were looking in Ecclesiastes, we were discussing the issue, the problem of oppression. In verses 1 to 3, Solomon saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. He saw the tears of the oppressed. He saw people who were helpless and comfortless. And such a sight brought the response of lamentation. It brought the response of indignation. It brought the response of frustration. And it brought the thought, the thought that we may not have thought of ourselves, but the thought that it was better to never be born than to even witness, much less go through, even witness the sight of all the evil that man can bestow upon his fellow man. Well, disgusted, really, with what he saw in the halls of justice, or better, we would call them the halls of injustice and oppression, the king, Solomon, now goes down to the marketplace he heads down to the marketplace to watch the, the various laborers at work. And here he sees something else. Now he sees envy. He sees rivalry. He sees, as one writer put it, oppression through competition. See, in an oppressive world where oppressors oppress the weak, some people believe and they start believing the only way to make it in such a world, the only way to survive life under the sun, the only way to have meaning, the only way to have significance uh, is to selfishly beat down others. It's a dog-eat-dog world under the sun. And so as Solomon now enters the marketplace, what he discovers is that all the toil and all the work that men do, the toil and work that he mentioned is a gift from God in chapter 2, that work that he sees is motivated by envy. It was motivated by jealousy, uh, covetousness. It was motivated by greed. It was motivated by discontentment. Look at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And so men enter 
uh, the rat race. At that time, it would have been men. Men or women enter the rat race. They learn their trade, and they, they toil at it. And, and they do this in order to have what their neighbor has. Uh, they want to get ahead by getting ahead of other people. Uh, this is the third form of wickedness that Solomon has acknowledged that runs through the society that Solomon sees. At the end of chapter 3, he saw injustice. At the beginning of chapter 4, he saw oppression, and now he sees envy. And understand, envy is no less a wickedness than injustice and oppression. In fact, one writer says, a model of work based on rivalry and envy often leads to injustice and oppression. Uh, Two weeks ago, I, I quoted from Proverbs 14, and Solomon speaks of oppression there, and he said, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Well, what's interesting, in the context of that verse, verse 31 of Proverbs 14, he begins in verse 30 with this, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot, whoever oppresses a poor man. They're put together. Envy is evil. Envy is wicked, and it's a wicked, sinful attitude that Solomon says is the driving force. It's the reason why there's so much hard work. See, for the first time now, we we see what lies behind the hard work and toil of man. And it's really not a pretty sight. And when the veil is lifted and the heart of the matter is now exposed, what we find more often than not is envy. That's what we find in the workforce. Envy is what drives our toil. It's what drives our achievement. Envy, as one writer has written, inspires competition and thus twists the noble sense of vocation into an exercise in rivalry, into an upward and onward quest in the pursuit of dominance, leading even to violence. That's the point the the Apostle James makes. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? is Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire... And you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Envy is the cause of quarrels. It's the cause of fighting. It's the cause of murder. You see the progression. The envy of our neighbor, it kind of flies in the face of the greatest commandment that Jesus gave, to love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew twenty-two, thirty-nine. 39. And it confirms Jesus' words. And Jesus talks about the heart in Luke chapter 6. And he says this, The good heart out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, it's just as true. And to the point that both Solomon and Jesus make here is that out of the abundance of the heart, Our hands toil. And see, if our heart is full of envy, then the heart uh, will cause us to work for evil ends. Love does not envy. Uh, And so, as as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, so we'll be toiling for evil ends if we have envy. I'm reminded of the bumper sticker. I had this on my car before I was saved. It read, whoever dies with the most toys wins. Um, or, or I had a poster in my room in college, again, before I was saved. Uh, you could see where I was headed. I, I would have 
uh, loved envy. Uh, justification for higher education, it said, at the top of the poster. And in the poster was a picture of a six-car garage with the world's most expensive cars. The only reason to study, the only reason I was there is to become rich. Well, that's a way of living. A lot of people do it, and Solomon says it's vanity. It's vanity. Our ruthless competition with each other to gain even more stuff is simply vanity. Now, envy isn't the only reason why we work. We know that. Uh, Phil Riken says there certainly are some exceptions that prove the rule, but the point still stands, he says. One of the reasons we work so hard is to get what our neighbor has. This is why some people shortchange the government during their taxes or, or cheat their customers or get into debt with their credit cards. It's because we envy what other people have and will do anything we can to get it. I'll give you an example I was, uh, of just one silly example I can remember. I served as an intern at, uh, at 10th Press, and I got to preach once. I was very excited. My friends came out. I got to preach in James Boyce's pulpit, and it was uh, wonderful. I loved it. Well, the next few weeks, the other intern was asked, and I got envious. Why ask him? Why can't it be me? And if you're not careful, you could see, so, well, he's not as good as me. He didn't have Steve Lawson. No, I didn't, I didn't say that. Uh, But you get the point. There's this envy that can build up. Think of the many ways that we're tempted to envy. We can envy someone else's looks. We can envy their abilities, their situation in life. We can envy and often do their bank accounts. We, We envy their possessions. That's usually at the top of the list. That's what the 10th commandment, most of the things that tells us not to covet are things that can be bought with money. You're envious of your friend who kind of has the, this beautiful 75-inch television, flat-screen television, and you're watching the Super Bowl on your 27-inch uh, TV box. You're envious of the guy with the Mercedes because, well, you just got an old Chevy, and, and you get envious. And you're envious of the guy with the boat because you had the fish on the land. And the list can go on, and they're silly things like I just mentioned, and they're very serious things, too. However, there is more to envy, though, than just simply wanting what other people have for ourselves. Uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great pastor, theologian, 18th century, said this. This is how he describes envy. I think it's important. The spirit of dissatisfaction or opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others. The prosperity and happiness of others. It, it, do you see how it goes beyond that envy is just wanting what other people have? It's part of it, of course. We want what they have, but there's something deeper going on. We, we, we don't want them to prosper either. We don't want them to have happiness. We don't want them to have success. It, it, even if I can't have those things, well, the next best thing is you not having it either. That's the idea. That's the full meaning of envy, and it's insidious, Edward says. It's hateful, and it's very harmful. If you want a biblical picture of this, look at the life of Joseph. You know the story. Joseph's brothers envied him, and they were jealous of Jacob, their father's affection for Joseph. And remember, Joseph, I mean, Jacob makes this beautiful coat for Joseph, and Joseph shows it to his brothers, and they envy it. But it's not simply that they want the coat. 
Why? How do I know that? I, didn't, I wasn't there. Well, uh, once they start down that track of envy, they begin to hate Joseph. They rip the coat off of him, and they don't say, I want it, I want it. No, they just get rid of the thing. They didn't even keep it. And they no longer are interested in possessing the coat. Now they're just opposed to Joseph's happiness. Not only did they not want him to have any possessions, they wanted to take his life. And so what they do, they cast him into a pit and they finally sell him to slaves. See, when, when we love someone, if we truly love someone, when we want that person to be happy even when we're not, even if it's at our expense, we, we would give up our own happiness, our own possessions for the sake of the ones we love. Love doesn't envy. But when we're envious, the opposite is what happens. And, and we want the worst for the other person. For some kind of warp reason, we believe it'll make us feel better because that person will be lower than us, less well-off than us, or less successful than us. That's what envy does. It tears people apart. It makes them bitter, and it makes them hateful. And so, as I said, it's the exact opposite of love. You know, I mentioned in the beginning sermon, when we, in the beginning, when we looked at oppression, we learned that it's our job to care for the oppressed, right? We know that. To identify them, to identify with them, that is, to be their advocate. Um, it's not our role to punish the oppressor. That's the government's role. It's our role to comfort those who have been oppressed, to help when we're able to help, to visit, as it says, those in prison, to give to those who are poor. We know that. We say yes. But see, if we're driven by envy... All of our time gets consumed with this desire, as the saying goes, to, to keep up with the Joneses. Now, why? Uh, because we want more, and so we'll be unwilling to visit orphans because it'll be a waste of our time in their distress. And if we're driven by envy, we're not going to give over our talents to helping and being an advocate for the oppressed. Why? Because we want more, more ourselves. So our time is selfish. It's, it, it's inward focus. If we're driven by envy, we're, we're not going to part with our riches. We're not going to part with our money to help the poor, to help the oppressed, to reach those in an unreached people group group in India. We're not going to do it. Why? Because we want that money for ourselves. And see, when we're at our worst, we will not only want these things for ourselves, we will toil and work hard using all of our time, using all of our talents, using all of our treasures, not only to try to gain it, but to take it from others, even deceitfully and violently if necessary. That's the fruit of envy. And maybe you've gone there only in your heart. We see it all around us in our society, happening all the time in, 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 in real life. But it happens in our hearts. See, envy is a cancer. And it slowly eats away at any possibility of us having a, a proper view of life and a proper view of our possessions. It eats away at relationships. And it eats away, as we'll see here, in, at our own lives. Solomon, with his vast knowledge and experience, uh, sees this lifestyle and says it's futile. It's a chasing after the wind. It leaves us empty-handed. And so what is a Christian to do? How are we to respond? How can God's people work 
in such a wicked, competitive world and, and survive? Well, Solomon gives us three possible answers, and he, he sketches these out for us. He illustrates them by the hands. Three positions of the hands. There is the folded hands, there is the cupped hands, and then there's the single hand. And those three positions of the hands will illustrate how we can respond. Let's look at each. The, the folded hands. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And what does that mean? It's not, you know, I fold my hand, I start eating. No, it's not that. A person who folds his hands cannot do what? He cannot use them to work. They are people who don't want to work. They don't want to join the rat race. They they realize, I'm not going to beat the Joneses. They're always going to have more than me, so I just give up altogether. I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to work. This is not a good option. Why? Because it's self-destructive. That's the imagery uh, of eating your own flesh. Proverbs 6 puts it this way. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and, uh, and want like an armed warrior. See, folded hands... Not doing anything results in poverty. But poverty is not the only issue. Solomon takes it in a more graphic way. He says they eat their own flesh. One writer put it this way. They end up eating themselves because there's nothing left to eat. (laughs) They eat away their savings. They eat away their future. They eat away their self-respect. They eat away their lives. And they will die. And so this kind of why bother attitude is not the answer. It's foolish. Dropping out of the workforce is not a wise option. The second option. Now, in light of what we just said, this kind of makes sense, right? It's the cupped hands. And what do the cupped hands represent? Well, I can get as much as possible. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Now, the idea, as I just said, two cupped hands can hold much more than one open hand. Yes, my daughter Andrea, she makes the popcorn, and I say, can I have some? And if I went in and just went like this, she'd be fine. If I go in like this, (laughs) we're in trouble, right? I I can get way more. The little kid who comes to the door during Halloween, you know, one little girl comes in. She takes one. Thank you. Can I have one more? Sure. The other kid comes in. He's just dumping it, right? That's the imagery. And, and, and you can get more with two cupped hands. That's basically what he's saying. And so Solomon's point is the person with two hands full is always grabbing as much as he can and, and always grasping for more. And like I said, that kind of looks desirable. It's better than the first one, right? You don't have anything. Wouldn't you rather have two handfuls than just one or nothing? Bigger always seems to be better. More money always seems to be better than less. A big mansion is always better than a shack. A a larger business, a a larger church uh, is always better than a smaller one. That's the conventional wisdom. That's how it goes. But see, that comes with a cost. Solomon says it's full of toil and striving after wind. 
In order to acquire the two handfuls, a person has to toil. He's not demeaning hard work when he says that, or even success. He's, he's saying a person like this has to just keep on working and working and working without any rest. And in the end, it's just a chasing after the wind. Why? Because it's never enough. And so Solomon says, you just end with two hands full of wind. They end up with nothing. See, Solomon's point is, is seen when this is contrasted with the, with the third hand position. See, contrasted with the first hand position, the folded hands, it, it started making sense. But look at it compared to the third. You have verse 6, this time the beginning of the passage, better is a handful of quietness. One handful, that's the third option. A small handful, uh, one handful is a small amount, but it comes with quietness. It comes with tranquility. It comes with peace of mind. Solomon is saying that is far better. That's what Proverbs is getting at. Proverbs 15, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with righteousness than large income with injustice. Proverbs 16, 8. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 17, 1. Most of you probably didn't waste your time, but you probably saw on TV the, the trial between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. It'd be a good one to apply. They had all the money in the world. You know, it was for millions of dollars, these decisions that were being made. Millions of dollars. And all they had was strife. Strife. And so sometimes less is more. And, and the quiet person has found the right balance. See, the, the picture Solomon is painting with the imagery of the one handful is that of contentment. The one handful is contentment. Uh, Jeremiah Barrows in his book, if you may not have ever heard that name, but it's a good book to read, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. This is how he defines it. That sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Notice he said in every condition. Then he said it goes on. Contentment works not by adding to our circumstances, but by subtracting from our desires. See, Christian contentment means that my satisfaction in life, my tranquility in in life, as he put it, is not dependent upon my circumstances, if I have more or less. That's what the Apostle Paul learned. He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And so contentment is something you can even have that you can possess when your neighbors have way more material possessions than you. Even when that happens, when you're in plenty or in want. There's nothing unbiblical in and of itself with wanting a better station in life or to have more. There's nothing wrong with that. Life is not saying, Solomon, excuse me, is not saying that in your life you should never strive for more. He's not doing that. 
But, but he's saying it is wrong if you do it with envy, and it is wrong if you have no contentment in life and happy with what God's provided. The biblical way is to be content with what you have, with what God has given you at this moment. Paul says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Do you notice he has always, always has this uh, uh, end times view when he looks at life? If this was all the world was, you lived here, you died, you became soil, well then yeah, take from others, who cares? But if you have a, have a, a Christian worldview, you recognize, I brought nothing into this world, I'm not going to bring, take anything with me, so be content, it's great gain. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Go spend a week on the Atlantic City boardwalk with the casinos. You'll run into these people. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so there's our choices. If we love money, and it's not just those who go to the casino. It's people sitting in church pews, too. But those are our choices. Quitting, folding our hands and just quitting, envying or contentment. Are you going to fold your hands and say, I don't care, I'll give up, I'll never get what I want? Or are you going to cup your hands and take whatever you can despite what it does to the other person, despite the expense of others? Or are you going to be content with what you have and uh, knowing that God has given it to you even while you're working hard to raise your station in life? There are the options, quitting, envying, or being content. Let me put it a different way. Are you going to envy? Are you, going to, are you willing to be like Jesus? Yeah. See, the person who is content is a person who's like Jesus. Uh, one preacher said, Jesus did not fold his hands in idleness. No. Neither did he envy people who had more possessions than he, which would have been practically everyone. He, he simply worked hard in the calling that the Father had given him, the calling to seek and to save lost sinners. And as he worked, he, he trusted the Father to provide for his needs. He was content with the basic things in life. And he also didn't take what others had and bring them low. No, what did he do? He died to give them what they did not possess. He sacrificed himself. They, they desperately needed this salvation in their oppressed state, and Jesus came to save them. And so Jesus is the true picture of contentment. There's no envy found in him. There was no laziness found in him. He worked hard to the glory of God. He trusted his Father to the glory of God, and therefore he was free to give his life for others to the glory of God. That is the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Well, in closing, let me, let me just say, if Christ has redeemed you from the bondage of sin, if Christ has redeemed you from your oppression, if Christ has died for you and, and you've been united to him, well, what he does now is call you to live as he did, 
to, to work hard, yes, to be, uh, but to be content with what you have and, and ultimately to find your joy, to find your peace, to find your tranquility, your satisfaction in the goodness of God. To be able to say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It won't be easy. You'll leave here today. You'll go home. You'll see your neighbor got the new car while you had to take yours to the shop. And you can start envying. And you give up a lot in this world when you live this way. Many of the world's pleasures, while everyone around you is participating in them. And it can start digging at you. It's never easy. But here's the key. We never do it alone. Christ didn't just pay the price and be our example. Christ paid the price and now enables us. He has given us of his Holy Spirit, and, and, and we get help from him to live like him. And, and here's the beauty of it. The gain, the gain is far, far better. And so Solomon makes clear And Jesus demonstrates with his own life. The better choice is obvious. Better, better is a handful of quietness. Better is contentment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your spirit that enables us to live like our Savior and be content in this world as we long for your return and and in the meantime find our satisfaction on you. Help us to do that very thing. And also, Lord, take this offering of ours and use it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.